0: What do we want for ourselves? What are we comfortable with for ourselves, for our communities, for our countries, and then for the world? Because this really, I mean, if somebody in some other country makes a germline or heritable change to a pre-implanted embryo that's taken to term, you know, that our kids could procreate with their kids. And so very quickly, if we don't have global rules and global standards, this could get very complicated.
1: Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here, you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patients, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones.
2: Today on Inside Reproductive Health, I'm joined by Jamie Messel. Jamie is a leading futurist, a geopolitical expert, and a science fiction novelist, as well as a senior fellow of the Atlantic Council. He's recently appointed to the WHO's Expert Advisory Committee on Human Genome Editing, and he has served in U.S. National Security Council, the State Department, and Senate Foreign Relations Committee, as well as having studied with the United Nations in Cambodia and has written on the Cambodian genocide, has written books such as The Depths of the Sea, which is a historical novel, and The Genesis Code, and The Eternal Sonata, which are science fiction thrillers. His latest book is Hacking Darwin, Genetic Engineering and the Future of Humanity. That's the reason why he's on the show today. He has a few other less impressive credentials, such as a PhD from Oxford and a JD from Harvard Law. I'm very excited to have him on the show. Jamie, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Thanks so much,
0: Griff. I'm thrilled to be here with you.
2: You're on the show because Serena Chen is a mutual friend of ours. She's always trying to get me to do something, to read Mm -hmm. stuff. to And she said, you have to have my friend Jamie on the show. And I said, okay, sure, probably an interesting guy. And I think you and I had corresponded before MRS. And then I'm at uh, MRS, the Midwest Reproductive Symposium. And I didn't go to your talk because I was probably doing something really important like talking with a client about Google AdWords or something. And Mm -hmm. everyone comes out of the talk and says you could hear a pin drop in there. And they gave me a copy of your book and you had later sent me a copy of your book. But that's what everyone wanted to talk about for the rest of the conference. I thought, oh, there's I, I should really see what this guy is talking about. And so I read through I've read through most of your book. And what I can tell is that you really have a vocation for
0: this. I'm really passionate about it. So first, thanks for the kind words. Even though you have finagled an extra free copy of Hacking Darwin, I'm thrilled (laughs) for you to for you to have it. And I'm just incredibly passionate about what the implications are of this incredible genetics revolution that we and we I don't just mean you know people in the field of fertility or medicine or science. We humans are passing through where really. These, these revolutionary genetic technologies, they're not just going to change healthcare as we transition from generalized to precision to predictive healthcare and health and life. And they're certainly going to change the, the entire field of assisted reproduction, which is already starting to happen. But in the longer term, this, is, this will have significant implications for even our evolutionary trajectory as a species, whether it's here on Earth or as a spacefaring species, which we will have to be over time because this planet isn't lasting forever. So I'm just incredibly passionate about it. I do a lot of speaking to medical groups and science groups. And so that's why I'm, I'm really happy to be here speaking with you. I'm
2: glad that it's you as well, because you approach this from a very tempered angle, a very considered angle, and it's not someone who only stands to gain financially by pushing some version of genome It's not someone that's trying to rouse the masses in hysteria for some sort of political concern. You pretty much from the beginning of the book lay out, this is where we're going. And here are... Here's some of the really great things that can happen. Here's some of the really bad things that can happen. And you revisit both sides pretty frequently throughout the book.
0: Yeah, well, that's, that's really important because if anybody is saying for any technology, it's all good. It's all upside and nobody is going to trust you and no one should trust you because every technology has an upside and a downside and people are conscious of that with AI but even things like the plow, the wheel has an upside, they have an upside and a, and a downside. So if we are wanting to have a, a meaningful conversation about these technologies and how they should best be used to optimize the good stuff and minimize the bad stuff, we just have to be honest about here are the potential ways we'll benefit and here are the, the potential dangers. And then we need to bring people into an inclusive not just a conversation, but a process of figuring out how do we optimize the good and minimize the bad. And that's what I've tried to do in the book. I think that
2: you said something along the lines of we have to, having to, to balance humility with hubris. But you said something along the lines of if humility, not hubris, had been our guiding principle as a race, we would look very different from who we look today can you talk a little bit about that
0: yeah i mean we are these crazy monkeys and somebody had an idea to first whatever one of us to climb down from the trees and yeah you know, somebody was always the first person to do all these crazy crazy things that we've done and every time there's been some new technology that could be used for something whether it's hunting or killing other people or whatever we've done it and we are this and that's why our species has been so distinguished, for better and for worse, from every other species on Earth. And that's and so we we can't pretend that we now have this Promethean new set of technologies. And certainly, genetic technologies are foremost among them. But genetics, AI, robotics, all of these these things, we just can't assume that we are a different species than we are. We are this hubristic species and we are just, there's so many of us trying so many different things. So we just have to assume that we are going to very aggressively use this, these and every other technology. And that's the starting point. And then we have to ask ourselves, well, if that's the case, What do we
2: do about it? That's the decision that you lay out for us in the beginning, saying that will be the most important and consequential decision we individually and collectively will ask over the coming years. How we answer it will determine who and what we are, where we live and can live, and what is possible for us as people and as a species. So we don't have a couple hundred page book, we have maybe an hour podcast, but if you were to lay out the decision as it is, as you describe it in the book from a bird's eye view, first talking about the technology that we have to screen now with IVF and then ultimately to genome sequencing, to gene editing, to epigenetics. What is the decision that you're laying out for us here?
0: It's a broad set of decisions. And so part of it, and I'll just jump over this very quickly, part of it deals with how we think about the application of genetic technologies in medicine. And I talked about this transition to precision, also known as personalized healthcare. And so that's certainly something that is coming. But in the context of ART, we have some really big decisions in front of us. So the first one is how we think about the role of IVF and embryo screening, not just for the higher risk pregnancies, as is currently the case, but for everybody. And it's my contention that we're going to move from conception through sex, primarily, we're going to move toward more and more people procreating and through IVF and embryo screening. And the reason that we're going to do that is when you take conception outside of the human body, you then have the ability, as, as all of your listeners know, to apply science to the pre-implanted embryo in ways that, wasn't, that weren't possible before. And so in the first phase, that will be through enhanced embryo screening and certainly we'll continue to screen for the single gene mutation uh, and chromosomal disorders that are now primarily what we screen for. But as we continuously and continually unlock the secrets of complex genetics, we're going to be able to screen for a lot more uh, and certainly health related, but also Life traits things like, if we choose to, like height, genetic component of IQ, genetic component of personality, spouse, and really personal stuff. So that's phase one. And phase two is using induced pluripotent stem cell technology to dramatically increase the number of eggs available in the IVF and embryo screening process. And that is, is a technology that, as you listeners know, is advancing very rapidly in animal models, not yet applied to humans. But I think it's pretty likely that in some number of decades, we're going to be able to generate large numbers of human eggs. And that really opens up the mathematics of embryo selection, because if you're selecting from among about 15 pre-implanted embryos, you don't have that many options. But bump that number up to 10,000, you have a lot of options. And then finally, is another frontier that, again, we've already crossed this line. It is of the gene editing of pre-implanted human embryos. As your listeners know, last year, the world's first two CRISPR babies were born in China. This year, it's very likely that a third baby was probably already born in China. And those numbers are going to, are going to go up. And so we're individually and collectively going to have to ask ourselves questions at each Level. What do we want for ourselves? What are we comfortable with for ourselves, for our communities, for our countries, and then for the world? Because this really, I mean, if somebody in some other country makes a germline or heritable change to a pre-implanted embryo that's taken to term, you know, that our kids could procreate with their kids. And so very quickly, if we don't have global rules and global standards, this could get very complicated.
2: When you were talking about phase one in the book, and you do a good job, throughout the book, I'm reading and I have a question in my head and I say, what about this? And for most of them, you answer them just later on in the book. But when you start off talking about this Phase one, as you describe it here on the show, of more moving toward more screening, optimal embryos, using PGT as we have it now, and right. probably some better variations of it. As And you you, you paint the, the picture of a, an REI as a, a coffee barista, <laughs> and <laughs> the, the listeners should read that chapter because I, I laughed at that and thought that's not too far from where we're going as far as our practice setups are. But but as far as the ethical concern, you're, you're laying out the ethical concern. And a woman goes and she has a few options for things like screening for, for Down syndrome among her embryos. She freezes her embryo. She comes back much later and she's got more options. She, she comes back many years later and has even more. And in that part, I thought, this is child's play, metal. I haven't heard the ethical okay. dilemma for most people yet because most people, I think, are still feeling like this is what's the difference? If I had eight embryos, And I have the option to pick which one is going to be the most successful. There's still all of my embryos, all of my partner from my partner's gametes as well. They're genetically us. That still falls within what I guess anecdotally perceived most people would consider natural when, and I don't want to skip over phase two because there's so many implications there, but I really see in phase three, just so many options that as the technology progresses, I think there's so many different possible outcomes to weigh against each other. And that's where a lot of the dilemma comes out. Do you think I'm being too remiss over phase one yes. or do you think phase three is do. where most I do. people will
0: have? No, no. I think that every one of those phases will be unbelievably complicated because even if it's phase one, let's just call, let's say you have 10 fertilized eggs, zygotes, and you're having to select among them. Yes, people will understand, well, I don't want to make a selection of an embryo that's likely to die. The child is likely to die of some terrible, deadly Mendelian genetic disorder. I think most people will eventually become comfortable with that outcome. But we're going to have a lot more information of what we are selecting. Will people be comfortable if others are selecting the kid with the highest genetic component of IQ? Let's say it's a mixed race couple and they tell the doctor, well, we want to have the lightest skin child, the darkest skin child. We want to have a child who's more outgoing or more introverted or deaf i mean there there are all kinds of possibilities that it's not just motherhood and apple pie it's actually pretty complicated and that's why there are countries in the world like germany where there are pretty significant restrictions just on on embryo screening because they have feel that embryo screening is and it's technically the case it's a form of eugenics and i myself am the child of a refugee from Nazism. And so when we're doing eugenics, even though it, it may be eugenics to promote health, we just need to be very mindful. We need to recognize that there are a lot of, of really important ethical issues that we can't skate over. And then, and that's just magnified when if, if we are able to use IPS technology, IPSC technology to have 10,000 eggs, I mean, that's, you're really able to do a lot. You're able to push just the human development process. And then with genome editing, then that adds a whole new angle of what are the different kinds of traits and attributes that we will be able to engineer going forward. So all of it is tricky. And I think that it would not be in our interest to uh, underplay the significance of ethical issues from the start. I definitely see your point of
2: all of the controversy that can come in from phase one. I think probably the reason why I made that assumption is because I just concluded as an inevitability. And of course, I could be wrong. History will play out. But I just look at the way Gen Z and millennials make demographic decisions, the way they make political decisions, the way They talk and there's so much to argue for what what we now might consider ancillary traits or or as things that could be elective like musical talent or height or athleticism where I, I just see the argument of that someone could make of I had a really rough childhood. I wasn't athletic. I was bullied because of it. There was so much that I couldn't participate in and that led to depression and addiction. And just, so I, I hear a very similar narrative already among millennials and, and Gen Z that I could just see this being leading to the, the public acceptance. So I'm sort of concluding as yeah. an inevitability. You pointed out the controversy, which I think means it's not inevitability, but do you still see the more widespread
0: acceptance? You know, uh, I, I, of- for sure, I, I for sure agree. I, I think that it, it is inevitable. All, the only thing I'm saying is we shouldn't pretend that it's not incredibly complex, not just from an ethical perspective, but just from a human resilience perspective. I mean, we are, are humans, our diversity, it's not a some little add-on, it's, it's our core survival strategy as a species. And so let's just say that there, we have widespread acceptance and everybody ends up wanting to have a tall kid with a outgoing personality and a high genetic component of IQ. If we could get all of those things. It may help us in in some ways, but it could reduce potentially the overall diversity and therefore resilience of our population as a whole. And even if we did things like selecting out recessive carriers of potentially deadly Mendelian genetic disorders, which is kind of just that, that's kind of like the most basic intervention that most people will probably want. Even that comes with a risk. I mean, we all know that the uh, being a recessive carrier of sickle cell of the sickle cell mutation actually can confer some additional resistance to malaria. But how many other recessive traits do we have? Genetic disease states do we have that could protect us against future pathogens or threats that we haven't yet faced, and we have no way of of knowing that. But I, but I, all in all, though, I do think that is future is inevitable for our species. And the question for us is, how do we want it to play out and, and how can we intervene to make sure it plays out in a way that is most helpful to each and all of us?
2: That example of the potential adaptation to malaria, for example, by being sickle cell anemic is a good segue into phase two the implications, the disruption, the possible controversy. Because in the book, as I'm reading it, I'm developing this notion. Perhaps it's not fully thought out yet, but it's essentially that by the time science is really able to, to plow through a controversy, it sometimes solves what had been controversial prior. And an example of that to me is embryonic stem cells. If if now we have the part of the controversy of stem cell, among many others, was right. that, that they came from embryos and now having the ability to revert almost any cell to a stem cell eliminates that, I suppose, just puts that particular concern out of consideration. So I can you talk a little bit about that, about what Concerns that we might have had going into phase two regarding stem cells or the ability to to reprogram them, re-edit them, I should say, right. and what that means going forward?
0: Yeah, well, well, certainly embryonic stem cells and induced pluripotent stem cells are extremely similar, but they're not always completely identical. And so there will be differences in different jurisdictions around the world in how comfortable people and societies are in using those embryonic stem cells. So it's it's certainly that issue has not been overcome, but there are other avenues for accessing or even generating stem cells. And so, but yes, in terms of the big picture point, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, the world of science and the world of policy and the world of culture are all changing and they're all changing in a very dynamic and interactive way. And so what we, what, we need to be doing is you know, talking honestly about the issues in the context and recognize that that, that context uh, changes. But the core point, I mean, the reason why embryonic stem cells were so sensitive and are still so sensitive politically and otherwise is that this represents, and depending on your politics, at least the potential for human life. And because of everything that we're talking about deals with human life and the future of human life. We just need to make sure that we're being extremely thoughtful and extremely respectful and also extremely inclusive because, you know, these are, are as we've seen with stem cells, as we've seen in the abortion debate, these are very, very sensitive issues. And we don't want to turn the future of reproduction into another battleground like the GMOs and abortions have become
2: which could easily happen and that doesn't even consider some of the of just the implications in the field would you give some example one of the examples that you mentioned if you had the ability to turn skin cells into egg cells for example and instead of just right. retrieving a dozen eggs instead of a woman having 3 to 400 eggs in her lifetime you could have more than that in a in a, a single retrieval or whatever whatever would replace a retrieval in in this sense. You mentioned same-sex male couples, for example, being yeah. able to create egg cells from skin cells, which means that both partners could both be biological parents of yeah. the child. And it, and essentially, yes. this one little application essentially wipes out what the almost everything that we have for donor egg today
0: yeah so insofar as mice are examples uh, for human potential we already have uh, two different labs in china that have bred one bred female mouse with another female mouse and they had their own mouse pups and those mouse pups were able to procreate and there was another lab that that bred a male mouse with another male mouse and they had pups those of were not able to procreate. And so basically what we're seeing is is the malleability of biology. And insofar as this transitions to, into humans, which over time I think it very likely will, just a lot of our assumptions about how the world works, how biology works, will be challenged. And that's going to be very, it's going to be very difficult for people. It's just, it's a whole new set of assumptions that are different from the assumptions we have had and now have.
2: Do you want your IVF lab to be at capacity? Do you want one or more of your docs to be busier? Do you want to see more patients at your satellite office before you decide to close the doors on it? But private equity firms are buying up and opening large practice groups across the country and near you. Tech companies are reaching your patients first and selling your own patients back to you. And patients are coming in with more information from the internet and from social media than ever before, for good or for bad, and you need a plan. A fertility marketing system is not just buying some Google ads here or doing a A couple of Facebook posts here. It's a diagnosis, a prognosis, and a proven treatment plan. Just getting price quotes for a website, for a video, or for SEO, that's like paying for ICSI or donor egg ad hoc without doing testing, without a protocol, and without any consideration of what else might be needed. The first step of building a fertility marketing system is the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's the cornerstone on what your entire strategy is built. You don't have to, but it is best to do that before you hire a new marketing person person before you put out an RFP or look for services before you get your house in order, because by definition, this is what gets your team in alignment. Fertility Bridge can help you with that. It is better to have a third party do this. We've done it for IVF centers from all over the world, and we only serve businesses who serve the fertility field. It's such an easy way to try us out. It's such a measured way to get your practice leadership aligned, and it's a proven process to begin your marketing system. Without it, practices spend marketing dollars aimlessly, And they stress their teams and they even lose patience and market share amidst these changes that are happening across our field and across society. If you're serious about growing or even maintaining your practice, sign up for the goal and competitive diagnostic. It's at fertilitybridge.com or linked here in the show notes. There is no downside to doing this for your practice, only upside. Now back to inside reproductive health. Your cautionary tale towards phase one and two and my cavalier attitude, at least in the beginning (laughs) towards them notwithstanding, let's move on to the juicy stuff,
0: phase three. Yep. So phase three, again, it's gene editing pre-implanted human embryos. If, you know, two years ago, if you had asked most people, experts in this field when we were going to see the first gene-edited babies. Maybe people would have said seven years, eight years, 10 years, but it was 2018. October 2018 was when those first two little girls were born in in China. So we have entered the era of genome-edited humans, and the numbers are going to go up. It'll be a little in the beginning. It may be a few a year, I would guess. But then at some point, and that point could be five years from now, it could be 10 years from now, but it's certainly not 20 years from now, those numbers are going to start going up significantly. And again, it's really challenging stuff and we need to start thinking about it and preparing for it. And so when there is a dominant genetic disorder, or it could be a small number of embryos generated through the IVF process, and all of those all of the available embryos will have some kind of terrible maybe deadly genetic disorder people are going to want to have this kind of embryonic quote unquote surgery and it's going to be very hard for society to say that they shouldn't have it because the alternative of it, to it is actually pretty terrible so we're we're head, that's the world that we're heading into and again the goal is how can we do this in a way that is as inclusive as thoughtful as respectful as it possibly can be.
2: Can you talk a little bit about that case in October of 2018 in China? Because if I recall correctly, you did not feel that that was ethical. You felt that it essentially amounted to human experimenting, if I'm not putting words in your mouth. No, no, 100%
0: right. He He Zhanghui, the Chinese biophysicist who did this, In my view, was a villain, which I I called him a villain in my World Science Festival event here in New York with Jennifer Doudna, or a monster, or whatever, because this was human experimentation, and he lied in in his IRB application. He was extremely secretive, didn't collaborate, lied to the parents. The consents were, in my view, fraudulent consents. It was so it was just terrible, and the intervention wasn't particularly successful. And the intervention that he was trying to do, it, it turned out it had the potential to even shorten, if, if successful, shorten the lives of these girls. And then finally, it was so unethical because the first step toward a, in applying gene editing to a human embryo in the best case scenario would have been something very collaborative, very well thought through addressing a specific target that would have otherwise caused a harm. Whereas in this case, they was creating a mutation, trying to create a mutation on the CCR5 gene to create an enhancement, which in this case would have been increased resistance to HIV. So yeah. So just really, it might be absolutely terrible in every way, but somebody was going to be the first. And Ho jong as far as we know, was the first, more are coming.
2: So recklessness, human experimentation are one concern, and they're likely very tied into the concern of eugenics. But I do see eugenics is a is a particularly distinct concern. One, and be, you 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 answer it once you once you get to the the chapter on ethics, which is chapter seven, I believe. But in the beginning, right. I'm thinking, you know, the concern about eugenics and why it has gone down in history as being so morally repugnant, to me, has so much to do with an essentially a, an authoritarian administration of forcing certain people to to breathe and forced restriction of other people that can't, whether through steril, sterilization or even in some cases euthanasia of small children at its at, at some of its worst applications, so I always saw that this concern of eugenics as being one that was authoritarian either by mandate or restriction whereas the ability now perhaps the idealist promise of this in the future is that well we can make everybody equal now we now we're not just saying that that short people can't breed and tall people have to breed in this way we can make everyone have whatever advantage they that is important to them. So can you talk about how this concern of eugenics will be different from what we saw in the past?
0: Well, first let me just correct a little bit your your interpretation of the past. So the real originators of eugenics weren't the Nazis. It was the democratic American system that were really the pioneers of eugenics and as a matter of fact the Nazis learned from and looked at U.S. state eugenics laws when they were developing their frameworks. And then they took that to a, a far greater level with the death camps and the people like Dr. Mengele, they came out of the eugenics movement, which was essentially a subset of science and medicine in Germany, very much connected to the United States. The difference here, though, is that while the eugenic model, at least in Nazi Germany, was this top-down authoritarian diktat, here, I think that some of the biggest, there may be countries that will practice eugenics. I mean, you could imagine a country like North Korea deciding it wanted to genetically engineer its population for One reason or another could, you know, over time, that will be possible. But the real drivers in most parts of the world are going to be parents and the parents who are going to be, in many cases, demanding interventions that have the potential to provide benefit to their kids. And then the question is, how do we think about that? Because, you know, I certainly support women's reproductive rights. But woman, I mean, no human should have unlimited rights to do kind of, quote unquote, crazy things to their own embryos. And so we as a society are going to have to decide what we think as the national society and the global society, what we think is okay and what we think is not okay. And certainly people don't have the right to do harmful experimentation on their own Embryos, even if they want to. I mean, we, we put people in jail for, for some of doing things like that. And so we're going to have to have, have restrictions. But you're absolutely right. It, it, in most cases, it's not going to be the authoritarian states. It's going to be demanding parents wanting to confer benefits on their kids.
2: I think, I'm not sure if this is your quote or someone else's, but at one point in the book, you say, renegade scientists
0: and totalitarian loonies are
2: not the folks most likely to abuse genetic engineering. You and I are, not because we're bad, but, but because we want to do good. Yep.
0: And we want to do good for our kids. And the problem is there's a little bit of a conflict between the individual desire to do what parents may see they may may feel like is good for their kids, and a societal interest in maintaining the diversity of the population. And so that's going to be very, very difficult to negotiate.
2: Especially if you could use the first, meaning the the parental interest for the child, to argue some sort of uh, or maybe you use the second to argue the first you know it's you know can people essentially say well we want to edit our child to be a different ethnicity than we are because we want to have we we want to have certain level of inclusion in our family or, or maybe
0: maybe a different color yeah
2: yeah and so just looking at the palette of of especially millennial and, and gen z and, and how they frame political priorities now that could be very difficult when those two especially go against one another
0: yeah no absolutely and and that's because these issues are so complicated is why now we need to be laying a foundation of public education of engagement of inclusiveness so that when we get, when these issues become more and more pressing, as they will become, will at least have a, a foundation of, of readiness. And maybe we can use that as an opportunity to pivot to your primary audience of the people, the reproductive endocrinologists, and people in the in the fertility industry, because right now those those people are really at the point of the spear, where these technologies, where the rubber is going to hit the road. Of kind of big ideas, basic science, and real-world applications. And, And that's why that whole ART community needs to be much more educated about these bigger picture issues, about the ethics issues. Already, you know, there are many people have dealt with patients, clients, whatever you want to call them, who come in and say, Well, I want to have a boy. And in some places that's legal, or maybe a girl. In some places that's legal and in some places it's not. Now there are fertility clinics that are letting people choose eye color. And um, there's going to be there's going to be more and more in that. And the 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 ART and REI doctors are going to need to be much more aware of the issues. And that's why, you know, I, I particularly enjoy I speak to a lot of medical groups. I, I love speaking to the, the MRS convention. A lot of doctors are are reading my book just so they can have. A little bit of preparedness to have the the conversations that are going to become broader than just the the more narrowly defined issues of fertility and avoiding single gene mutation and chromosomal disorders, which are now the kind of the mainstay of what ART docs are doing.
2: That community, by the way, I I've, 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 I've forgot about them as we're as we're getting so engrossed in this conversation, yeah, it's so broad and overreaching. And to your point, as this Conversation that we're getting into is broader than many of the applications that they have today. At what point does REI just become so little of a part of it to to perhaps you know relatively nothing to to do with?
0: Well, I mean, what we're talking yeah, about REI and ART, it's going to be critically important for a very 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 long time because. These, these applications of genetic technologies to the experience of childbirth, somebody is going to have to do it and it's going to have to be these doctors and the communities. Having said that, this industry is going to need to change because if IVF embryo screening and ultimately genome editing of pre-implanted embryos becomes more and more mainstream, as I believe it will, somebody's going to have to do it. And that means that this whole community that is built around a set of assumptions about how many people are going through IVF, how many kids are born through ART, if that number starts to to explode, and we're going to need to think about ways of automating systems so that uh, there's a lot less that's done by hand and more by machines. We're going to need to think about who are other kinds of professionals who we can bring into this process and how we can make sure there's adequate training. But we don't yet have an infrastructure that could support. I mean, right now we're a little less than 2% of kids born in the U.S. are born through IVF. In Japan, it's about 5%. In Norway and Denmark, it's about 10%. So if we went to Norway and Denmark levels here in the United States, the REI community would be overwhelmed. And I think that's where we're going. We need to start building that that infrastructure. And, and certainly, there's a human capabilities part of that. And there's an automation part of that. When I go and, and visit ART, REI clinics, you can just see there's a, a lot of mom and pop stuff that's happening where the technology isn't really changed. I know, I believe you've had David Sable on your show, who's very thoughtful about automation. There's a lot that's happening with companies like tomorrow that are working on robotic egg and, and embryo preservation that's a, just a, a higher level than the, just the, the standard operating system of what kind of looks like a, a keg in the back of some of fertility clinics where the, where the, the samples are, are stored. So it's, this industry is going to have to change. It's going to have to change pretty rapidly, but better there should be planning that goes into that process now than scrambling if we if we don't prepare and that comes upon us later.
2: Yeah, they already are overwhelmed. Yeah. And th- this gives a whole new impetus to access to, to care. I have clients that have seven-week waiting lists. Yeah. There's only 1,100 board-certified REIs in the United States. And we already see a number of people that can't afford care part of the reason is is from yeah. how how it's paid by by the the other part is that the demand for fertility treatment is multiples higher than the, the supply of providers and infrastructure to provide for them, and you know you make the case in the book that essentially it will be it, it will be considered negligent to have children not using assisted reproductive technology or
0: parents not using it so it's certainly in the, in the future like right now when you see a kid with down syndrome like i think we all feel that's i mean these are wonderful kids but that you would wish if you the kid didn't have down syndrome Like i wish the kid didn't have it because it's very difficult but when you see a kid with polio you think well wait a second kids aren't supposed to have polio what went wrong? Why does this kid have polio? And so we're going to change the way we think about many genetic disorders from some visitation of fate to some decision that somebody made in the system. Or is this a decision among parents about how to go through the process of reproduction or from the society about what services would be covered? So all of that is, is is coming, and it's 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 going to change our culture. But in order to be ready for it, certainly the whole suite of services that the REI ART practitioners are providing it needs to be much higher through, throughput and less expensive. And and I think those are both good things. We should want those things as people who who care about providing the best service to our to our patients, but to make sure that there's not a quality drop. We're going to need to think differently about how this whole industry operates.
2: It's a, this really circles back to the the conversation with David Sable as well, because if it weren't for entities incentivized by really bringing solutions to scale and mm-hmm. using the market to reward them for that, it's hard to see how anything gets more cost effective or less costly if 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 supply uh, to provide treatment it grows incrementally at best and demand for services grows exponentially, as you and others have outlined.
0: Yep, that's exactly right. And that's what we need to start preparing for. And other models will be built in other countries. And so if there is too big of a problem here, then lots of people will start who can will go to other countries and they'll just I mean we we now live in a global marketplace where the where there is a, a competition not just of ideas but of ways of societal and professional organization and so this is coming and the question for all of us and certainly for the REI docs and the, the ART industry as a whole is do you want to be facilitating this new phase in not just this this part of medicine and healthcare but in our societal development to make sure that it happens in mm. the way that benefits the most people, or do you want to be defending this old system that will increasingly become out of data? I think the former is a much better place to be
2: you've waxed philosophical and given us a lot of data throughout the episode, but Jamie, how would you want to conclude with your vision for society and how arts can play a positive role and and what our listeners should start taking into consideration now?
0: Really great question. So I'll do big picture and then small picture. Big picture, this future is coming. Our genetically engineered future is coming. It's got some real incredible upsides and some real dangers. And we all, and especially those of us like the listeners to your podcast who are more aware of, of what's happening, we all need to play a role in doing what we can to optimize the good stuff and minimize the bad stuff. And so that can happen on an individual level, in terms of professional organizations but also in terms of getting our government involved we have elected officials who don't know much about science but they have to and so we need to be part of that education process and for the 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 REI professionals the the ART professionals as i said before they i'll say you are all really at the pointy edge of the spear and you are the ones who need to understand what's happening and be able to educate your patients. And there's been some real progress, there's some wonderful websites that provide educational materials, but we've got to go beyond that. We have to keep building on that, uh, on that strong base. So certainly one of the reasons why I wrote the book is so that all kinds of people, including professionals like your, your listeners, just have a one-stop shop, a place they can go and learn what they need to know to join the conversation. But once you have this background, once we have that background, we all have an obligation to engage others, to educate others. Because our world is changing so rapidly. And as you said in your, in your earlier question, if the world is changing quicker than people are prepared for, it gives people a lot of anxiety. And that has an issue like this, it could be incredibly dangerous and destructive. And because we don't want that, everyone not only is, but has to see themselves as a stakeholder in building the kind of future we'd all like to live in.
2: I know we said we were concluding, but I'm really curious because we talk so, we talk pretty little about this in the field, at least in the conversations that I hear both in talks and in side casual conversations. When you speak to REIs, to lab directors, to HTLDs, how familiar are they generally with what you're talking about? I imagine they're curious, but what, what's the baseline level of, of interest and background knowledge?
0: So all of the people you mentioned, they're all domain experts. I would say, and I speak to a lot of domain experts, whether it's the doctors, I spoke to 300 of the top scientists at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory as a guest of their director. But most of the people, 98% of everyone in these fields, I mean, they are quite rightly focusing on solving the problem right in front of them. And so these bigger, more philosophical issues are often further away. And that's that's what I'm trying to, to impress upon people is that this what seems like an abstract philosophical sci-fi future is actually coming so much sooner than we all think or are prepared for. So the kind of big picture, the little picture understanding is extremely high. The big picture awareness is relatively low. And that's, what I'm, I, I'm trying to change through the, the book and, and the outreach around it.
2: Dr. Methel, thank you for coming on after my razzing of your very prestigious alma maters and giving <laughs> us this background knowledge and the data and bringing this to the forefront of our field. Jamie, I would love to have you back on Inside Reproductive Health. Thanks for coming to the show.
0: My great pleasure.
1: You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health podcast with Griffin Jones.